WNHHFM 103.5 Just in Time Conversations. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, inviting you to be in community with us about conversations and ideas that matter with people making a difference. Today, our guest is Faisal Salah, director of director and founder of the Palestine Museum US in Woodbridge, Connecticut. Faisal, thank you so much for being with us. Great, great pleasure for me to be with you here. Thank you. So I, I've had the opportunity to, to be in the space before um, uh, for an event. But, you know, tell us what brought you to the museum. Uh, I've been uh, in the U.S. for about 50 years, uh, and I spent wow. uh, most of that time... Uh, uh, working uh, in business and uh, kept my nose to the grindstone, like they say. Uh, and then uh, there came a time where uh, I felt I really need to give back uh, to uh, my homeland, to, to Palestine, where I'm originally from. Mm. And uh, I looked around to see, you know, how I can uh, make a contribution, how I can make a difference, just to use your uh, uh, show slogan and uh, you know the idea of a museum um, really uh, attracted me uh, at the time uh, there weren't any Palestinian museums uh, in the Americas and, wow. and, and perhaps in the in the Western Hemisphere if you will uh, in, in the US there were 77 museums that support Israel mm. uh, and not a single museum that uh, spoke for Palestine uh, and 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 um, told the Palestinian narrative, uh, and uh, and as you know, the uh, the Western media in general and the media in the U.S. the mainstream media uh, does not say a whole lot about Palestinians and ignores the subject. And uh, and when they really deal with the subject, they cast Palestinians in a ve- in a negative light, uh, make calling us all terrorists and things like that. And uh, of course, that's not true. Uh, so the idea of a museum uh, really was uh, something I, I latched on, and uh, I wanted uh, to create something that can tell the Palestinian story to the West and to the American public uh, in an artistic way, using the arts as a medium of communications. Because I felt the arts, uh, using arts as a mo- more effective way uh, than the political haranguing. So we wanted to really to change the discourse from from talking about political things to to looking at arts and, and looking at paintings and and films and a variety of other forms of art. Wow, the the uh, you know uh, 
culture is so so important and, and sharing culture is uh so important so i i guess you know how long has the museum been around and how long did it take you from the idea of the museum to opening doors um it took me about uh nine months uh from when i started and the, the first thing i did was to get a url uh, <laughs> to secure the url palestinemuseum.us and uh, a lot of people didn't understand what the .us is and uh, it was what it was one of the new uh extensions that uh, became available years ago so you could have .s instead of .com if you uh, happen to have kind of a u.s version of something or to qualify and we did obviously it's a palestinian museum in the u.s and uh i opened the museum uh on april 22nd 2018 so it's been a little over five years that the museum has been open wow that that is that is amazing, and uh, I, I'm guessing uh, during COVID that must have been a difficulty to kind of show and spotlight the museum. Well, that's that's true, but uh, also it was a great opportunity at the same time, which we took advantage of. Mm-hmm. Uh, during COVID, uh, I remember our last live event was on March eight, March eighth. Uh, 2020 and that was the International Women's Day and we had a a huge uh, event and exhibit at the museum with 125 people present and the next day everything was shut down basically (laughs) Uh, so we did some uh, quick thinking there and said well uh, let's let's see if we can turn this around instead of this being a a disadvantage uh, let's see how we can capitalize on it and uh, like uh, a week later, we decided to start offering um, online programming. Mm. And, uh, uh, and that uh, was a great idea. So we uh, started uh, doing artist talks, uh, uh, showing some films. Uh, and then uh, before we know it, uh, we had uh, quite an audience uh, following us, uh, not just in the U.S., but in about 40 different countries around the world. So. Wow. Uh, each Saturday, we screen a film related to Palestine, and uh, we have people tuning in from Europe, from the U.S. and Canada, from uh, Africa and the Middle East, and sometimes from India and China. So uh, it, it's uh, been quite a, a, a success. And uh, now we've probably put on about a couple of hundred events uh, wow. since COVID started, and uh, what initially w- was just a temporary measure uh, became uh, a major part of our strategy uh, is to and we are we have continued with with the uh, programming online and uh, each weekend we have two events and uh, people can uh, register for them online um, and, and they're free events they can watch a free film on Saturday usually the events are 12 noon US uh, Eastern time and people can uh, sign up for these events by going to our website, palestinemuseum.us. Uh, and then when they are on the site, they can select events. And then you know, each event has a page. You go to the page and you um, register for the page. And Zoom sends you a link that you can use when the time comes to get on the program. 
so that that has been uh, really a great success for us to to switch uh, from just being local to uh, being local and at the same time having a global reach uh, through uh, remote programming. No, that that is beautiful and great that uh, that uh, you've taken that opportunity to to connect and share with people in such a way. Um, you know, you talked about a little bit about the purpose of the museum to share, um, you know, the history and to share uh, the culture. Um, how? Since opening the museum to now, how have you felt about the mission and felt about, you know, doing all these programming? Uh, we feel very good about it. Uh, basically, we, we have kind of two audiences. Uh, one audience is the Palestinians uh, themselves who live in the U.S. and who also tune in to listen to us. And also we have the you know people who are not Palestinian who don't know much about Palestine in many cases know nothing about it, uh, but they hear things in the mainstream media and have some sort of preconceived ideas as to what Palestine and Palestinians are, and um, and they've uh, been kind of uh, indoctrinated or brainwashed in a certain way in in believing some things that are not necessarily true uh, regarding you know what what happened uh, in Palestine and to Palestinians and how the, the, the current uh, situation uh, evolved over time. So if, you, if we have the time, I'd like to take a few minutes and, yeah. and provide uh, our audience uh, with a little bit of a historical background to put things in perspective and to help explain where we are today. So we go back to uh, the um, uh, 1800s, the... the, the late 1800s, um, uh, there was a, a new movement uh, was coming up uh, called Zionism. And the idea behind Zionism, which was uh, championed by uh, someone with the name Theodore Herzl, uh, Theodore Herzl uh, had the idea of creating a national home for Jewish people, uh, from gathering Jewish people from around the world and taking them someplace and creating uh, a homeland for them, uh, a country, basically. And uh, the country that uh, he identified was Palestine. And um, as part of that movement, uh, which began to gather steam, steam towards the beginning um, uh, of the 20th century, like around 1900, um, uh, people, uh, Jewish people from around the world started slowly immigrating to uh, Palestine and uh, acquiring land and um, trying to create settlements where they could live in them. And initially, the, that movement was somewhat uh, uh, small and uh, not noticeable, but it didn't take long until the Palestinians found, realized that, hey, what's going on here? All these people coming in and uh, they are uh, eventually looks like they're going to take over the country and what's going to happen to us. And uh, so that uh, be began uh, quite a concern among the Palestinians. However, uh, the Palestinians were, were not really, uh, didn't have any means of resisting that. Uh, in, uh, after World War I, uh, the League of Nations gave Britain control of Palestine uh, as a mandate, and that's what's called the mandate era there. 
And uh, Britain uh, had expressed um, uh, their support for creating a Jewish home in Palestine uh, by uh, issuing a declaration called the Balfour Declaration, named after the foreign minister uh, of Britain at the time. And, and the Balfour Declaration looked favorably at creating uh, a homeland for the Jewish people. Now, the Zionist uh, um, um, I- ideas that were expressed to people uh, and their narrative was, uh, look, uh, Palestine is a land without people mm. or a people without a land. And, and that's a great uh, fit. And that was a lie that, you know, <laughs> and the Palestine had a lot of people in it and was fully inhabited and had hundreds of villages and dozens of cities and it was a vibrant community both culturally, agriculturally, industrially and and uh, a lot of things were going on there. And yet uh, in Europe and in the U.S. the Zionist campaign to raise funds and to gain uh, political support was based on the fact that there were no Palestinians. There no such thing as Palestinians there. The country was fairly empty, and the, the new Jewish immigrants were going to turn the desert into bloom, uh, which also was another lie. That it was uh, the people who were really blooming the land there were the Palestinians. They were farmers. They know how to farm, and how and they had they were big in the uh, in the in the orange. And banana businesses. Uh, my family uh, was uh, living in a small village near Jaffa, and uh, my father had a, a, a thriving business of uh, of oranges and and bananas, and he was uh, a big exporter of oranges through the port of Jaffa. Uh, so, you know, all these uh, lies were used to drum up support for the Zionist movement. And so, what happened? Uh, uh, in, in, when in the 30s, uh, the Jews were persecuted in Eastern Europe and in, in Germany, uh, and uh, everybody knows the, about the Holocaust and, and how uh, Germany was really trying to exterminate the Jewish people completely, and they've uh, they've killed you know and six million at least of, of, of the Jews there, and, and there was a horrible horrible thing that, that took place there. And that, that really accelerated the, immig- the immigration into Palestine. Uh, so more and more Jewish people came to Palestine, and, uh, and they were part of the Zionist movement. Now, the, the Zionist movement had some plans uh, for Palestine, and w- the plans that they had called for creating a Jewish state in Palestine. And not just a Jewish state, but a, a state that is exclusively Jewish. In other words, no other people were supposed to be in Palestine except the Jewish people. Mm. And uh, so that obviously created such a big conflict because Palestine was not empty. And so the Zionist movement had to figure a way to deal with that. And uh, the way they dealt with it uh, happened in the late 40s in 1947, uh, the beginning of uh, f- late 47, 48, when the state of Israel was created in May of 1948. Uh, but leading up to that, the Zionist forces have devised a plan to get rid of all the Palestinians who were living in Palestine. And uh, they began the process of depopulating 
the Palestinian villages uh, maybe six months before the state of Israel was declared. And they attacked, the Zionist forces attacked Palestinian villages one after another, uh, and they forced either forced the people out uh, out of their homes and then destroyed their, their homes, or they've committed atrocities and massacres to scare people off, and they... They publicized those, and people heard that. They grabbed their children and, and took off and to save their children and flee for their lives. So bottom line, over a 14-month period, the Zionist forces depopulated uh, 450 or about 500 Palestinian towns and villages and destroyed most of them. They bulldozed most of them to prevent the Palestinians from coming back. And when the state of Israel was declared, uh, and at the, end, the, the aftermath of the declaration of the state of Israel, uh, close to 800,000 Palestinians lost their homes and became refugees in the adjacent areas in the, in the West Bank, in Gaza, in Syria, mm. and uh, in Lebanon. And Israel refused to allow them to go back to their homes. And in many cases, they destroyed their villages so they couldn't even go back and live there. Uh, and t- Till today, 75 years after what happened, which Palestinians refer to it as the Nakba, uh, the Palestinians have not been able to go back uh, to their houses, to their homes, to their properties in Palestine. And the, the 800,000 who were dis- displaced in 1948 are now close to 10 million people, and they're wow. all around the world in the diaspora, in refugee camps, and Israel, uh, in 1967, occupied the rest of Palestine that it did not control in 1948. So all of Palestine now is under Israeli control, and their Palestinians have been living under Israeli occupation uh, since 1967. So it's over 50 years of occupation and 75 years since the original Palestinian refugees were displaced from homes. Yeah, uh, with all this, um, mm. the Western countries and the United States fully supports Israel, and Israel currently um, has been an occupier for fifty years, and they uh, have implemented an apartheid system, uh, and uh, have have created a lot of colonies that they call settlements uh, in the Palestinian areas, and. Uh, they basically have an apartheid system where Palestinians can't use certain roads, Palestinians can't get the clean water, they can't get the, the electricity. It, it, it's, a, it's a very, very brutal system of apartheid on top of the uh, occupation. They've created a lot of checkpoints. Uh, they have over six, 700 checkpoints in an area you know, the size of Rhode Island or the size of New Jersey, if you will. Just you, Palestinians can't move. Uh, they they can be arrested. They can be killed without any consequences. It, it's a horrible situation that's going on, and yet the U.S. provides Israel with three and a half billion dollars of of aid, most of it in military aid, uh, each year. Uh, the 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 situation there is intolerable, and many people uh, are uh, against the U.S. policy there, but. We don't hear about it because of the, you know, the, the media is, is really controlled by 
supporters of Israel. Mm. So this is a kind of a, a background in the Palestinian perspective on what, what happened and, and how, do we get, how did we get to where we are today. For those of y'all who are just joining us, you're listening to Just In Time Conversations on WNHHFM 103.5. That uh, you gave a a, a history uh, uh, for us also. Um, You know, out of this, you, you know, you've created this museum to highlight the people, the journeys, the struggles. Um, how, you know, how have, how have you been able to, to, to connect with people in a way to talk about, you know, some of the struggles that you mentioned? Uh, we, we do get visitors to the museum, uh, uh, you know, on a, on a regular basis. Uh, and like I mentioned earlier, we do have our online programming as well that gives us a, a farther reach beyond the current geographic area, and uh, we've um, we, re- we we conduct events on site. Also, we recently had a play on at the at the museum. We've had other other functions that we we put on. Uh, we also offer our space as a function that people can make use of. Anybody who who needs a, a function space. Uh, uh, is welcome to contact the museum, and we provide the space at no charge as a service to the community. Uh, the museum is also uh, supported with some small grants from uh, Connecticut Humanities, uh, which is a really a great organization that, that supports the arts uh, in Connecticut. Mm. Uh, and we're, we're very grateful to uh, Connecticut Humanities for, for, their, uh, for their support. Um, and uh, we really uh, like to call upon the uh, the political representatives uh, in, in uh, of the state in, in in Hartford to continue to uh, support the dedication of funds for the arts in Connecticut because it's a very important very important cause. The arts are a very important aspect of our life in Connecticut. Mm. I, you know, we were talking earlier, and uh, uh, you know, I laughed. Y'all are in Woodbridge, so how did you end up in Woodbridge? What, what, you know, out of all the places, what made you decide Woodbridge? Yeah, uh, the the establishment of a new museum is difficult, and the most difficult part of it, actually. Mm is the physical venue, the physical space, because the space is very expensive. Uh, and uh, fortunately, uh, uh, we happen to own a building in, uh, in Woodbridge. It's, an, it's a three-story office building, uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a very nice building, with nice grounds and the surroundings. And uh, we had... Uh, extra office space in the building, and uh, as you know, with COVID, that uh, we even have more uh, more more vacant space now, which we we wish we didn't have. But anyway, we took about six thousand five hundred square feet of that space and remodeled it, and we used that for for the museum. And that's why we're located in Woodbridge, Connecticut. But a lot of people ask the question, and uh, the last couple of years we've had major exhibits in Europe, for instance. Uh, 
last year we were uh, invited to participate in the uh, in the uh, in the Venice Biennale Art Art Festival, mm-hmm. which is a seven month long exhibit. It's really the most uh, important art event in the world. Uh, that was in Italy, and people in in there from different countries said, "Well." Well, what's this Woodbridge? And we told him, well, Woodbridge is a nice suburb of New Haven, Connecticut, and that's where the museum is located. Uh, so we, we feel like we're, we, we put Woodbridge on the global map, <laughs> if you will, when you see uh, articles written uh, in different uh, international publications, and it would say the Woodbridge-based Palestine Museum, U.S., etc. So that was... Uh, <laughs> That's the story by way there. Now, if we are to take the museum that we have in Woodbridge and try to house it in a place in New York City, you're talking, mm-hmm. you're talking about $10 million worth of uh, cost. Uh, so it, it, uh, it, it's not that easy to put a museum in a, in, in a, in a, in a commercial area of, of a town because it costs a lot of money for the real estate. It, you know, you have... A, a lot of different pieces there, clothing and 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 uh, uh, ceramics and, and 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 textiles. What what's a piece that speaks to you, or something that really stands out to you that you know you feel people need to see themselves? Well, it's it's, it's really hard to tell. It's just like you know, you ask you, well, which one of your children's you like the most? (laughs) (laughs) I look at everything there that that is so uh, precious and so valuable, and it it speaks, and I feel emotional about a lot of the things that are there. You know, the textiles you refer to are these embroidered Palestinian dresses that we call thobes in Arabic. And these, uh, what the women in Palestine wore, and in many cases, they made them themselves, and the embroidery that was on them is a form of art. And uh, each village has its own motifs of embroidery. Uh, and there are hundreds of different variations of these uh, em- embroidery designs uh, to the point where it's a whole art unto itself. And uh, we, we do have about 15 or 20 different uh, thobes, if you will, uh, at the museum representing different uh, villages and different towns and uh, and different styles and uh, we used some of we used a couple of those uh, uh Phillips when we did the exhibit in Venice Italy uh, we 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 took two of them there and exhibited them there also uh in, in addition you know we have um you know uh modern art uh, a variety of styles ranging from the realistic to the abstract mm-hmm. um we have contemporary art. Uh, we also uh, have uh, sculptures, uh, photography, modern photography, and uh, and historic archival photography from the early 1900s. You know, photos of Palestine and Palestinians back uh, you know about a hundred years ago mm-hmm. uh, in Palestine. So this, uh, you know, the the Palestinian identity is very strongly expressed at the museum. Everything you see there is about Palestine or about, or about Palestinian artists. And, um, you know, the, Israel is, is claiming there is no such thing as Palestinians, and there was no Palestinians. Mm. But we have, like, hundreds of objects at the museum that says Palestine on them, like 
we have a, a Rand McNally globe from 1930 uh, that shows, among other things, Palestine on it. Oh, and wow. in, in addition, uh, people find it very, very interesting to look at that globe because it has the names of all these colonial uh, powers in Africa, for instance. Uh, you know, you see the the Belgian Congo <laughs> uh, or the, uh, the uh, Southeast A French Southeast Asia or something instead of Vietnam. <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's very interesting for the young people who really are were not around uh, when Africa was colonized um, by all these Western powers, by the Portugal, by Portugal, by Belgium, by the French. You know, Algeria used to be, used to have France on it. Uh, and uh, so it, it, it's very interesting to look at the historical things. And we, we invite uh, people to come and look at the museum because if nothing else, there, there are a lot of historical things even not related to Palestine that you can see there. Device locked. My, my phone uh, decided to uh, <laughs> hop in. Uh, no, so that, that uh, I, I see what you mean. It's very hard to pick a favorite uh, uh, as there's many things to be seen. Um, there are hundreds of um, paintings and photographs, and and uh, there's 6,500 square feet of of space that's fully, uh, the full of art. Uh, mm. The walls are completely full of art, and we even have stuff on the floor, uh, and uh, the we have stuff in the hallways that doesn't fit in the fall. We have a lot of art in storage. Now, most of that art uh, we have it on loan from Palestinian artists from Palestine from the West Bank, from Gaza, from um, the refugee camps in, in Jordan, in Lebanon, and, and from other countries around the world, from the Palestinian diaspora also. So it's a, it's a rich mixture uh, of, of, of art. Now, how, you know, what's the process for, you know, getting all these things together? Because you said it took you about nine months to get it together so that seems really fast yeah well uh, i had a, a lot of business experience uh, for many 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 years before that so i used my business experience to, to really to do something very efficiently and uh, <laughs> quickly but basically you know i'm in contact with hundreds of artists and at any given time you know we're working with three or four or five of them about getting some of their artwork here to the museum and exhibiting it, uh, we offer the artwork for sale also. People can buy uh, some of the artwork if they're interested in it. Uh, so now that the museum is very well known, uh, it's very easy to get artists to, to send us their artwork. At the beginning, it was a little bit difficult because they didn't know who we were, uh, but it, it didn't take much for, for it to catch on. So we... Uh, we have usually a, a long waiting list of people who want to exhibit their artwork at the museum, and we have to kind of curate uh, the art that's available and, and create some meaningful exhibits from it. And how did this, uh, this uh, event in Italy come about? Uh, we were looking for um, something big to do for the museum to get its name around, and... Uh, we uh, looked up, uh, you know, 
shows that you can participate in it. And when we came across the Venice Biennale, uh, Venice Biennale uh, has been going on for over 120 years. Wow. In fact, the, the, the iteration of the Biennale we participated in last year was the 59th, and the word Biennale means once every two years. Mm-hmm. So as a minimum, uh, if it was the 59th, there would have been 120 years. Wow. Uh, <laughs> So every two years they have that. Uh, this year we're also participating in a big exhibit in Venice, but this time it's a, an architectural exhibit, uh, and that happens every two years also in Venice. And uh, the, the architectural exhibit, uh, the theme of it is the Nakba, because it was the 75th anniversary of the Nakba. And it, it, uh, it focuses on maps of Palestine and the villages that were destroyed and recreation of some of the villages and an animation process that shows visitors uh, the timeline and the sequence in which the Zionist forces uh, depopulated and destroyed the Palestinian villages uh, in 1948. So a, a lot of the ex- things that are exhibited there have to do with maps and, and, um, and villages and things related to the, the 1948 Palestinian Nakba. I, I, I wonder and, and, and imagine, you know, how, how, what was the reception from your family when you told them about this project and how, <laughs> how have the, uh, 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 how have they responded to it now? Well, they, you know, they, they, of course, they, they were supportive of, of me doing this, but in the back of their heads, it, they were saying, oh, there, there we go again, you know, because they, <laughs> they know like when I get into something, I, I get really passionate about it and put all my time and effort into it. And they knew I'm going to be spending 100% of my time on this. I did have a day job also. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so I was kind of trying to balance uh, a lot of things and... and uh, you know, do do the work that that was really driving me, the passion of uh, the Palestinian cause, and and you know, doing something for the people in Palestine who are living under extremely harsh and difficult conditions, and not not just physically, but mentally, and the anguish and and the loss of their homes and the loss of their land and the injustice that they're dealing with be able to do something for, for them, to, do, to bring up their, their story to people, to see and to hear uh, about all this stuff that's going on and where, where the world doesn't seem to really willing to lift a finger to, to help the Palestinians. Uh, anyway, so it, it was, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a negative and a positive uh, on their part. And... Uh, but uh, now that they see the museum is, is, is vibrant and very successful and has a global presence, and uh, you know they're they're very supportive of, of what I'm doing. No, that that you know as you were talking about this, it just you know the being able to connect to your history is is something so important. It allows us yeah. to build. Uh, and and see a perspective for the future, and so maybe uh, I can uh, mm. just give you a little bit of uh, info about my personal background. You know? Yeah, um, 
like I said, I I come from a family that uh, was from a village near Jaffa called Salama, and Salama was depopulated and, and destroyed in on April 25th, 1948, mm. uh, as part of that timeline that I was talking about. And uh, my family were refugees in 1948, mm. and uh, my parents had 10 children at the time, <laughs> and uh, they uh, were located in, in, in the near Ramallah on the West mm. Bank. And I was born three years later, but they had lost everything they had completely. And they were living basically off rations from the Red Cross initially. And at the museum, we have on display our Red Cross card from 1949 with different stamps for each time we received rations. And the rations went in the form of flour and sugar and oil and butter and soap and things, things that you need to, to live from day to day. And after the Red Cross finished its work, the, the United Nations formed an organization called UNRWA, United Nations uh, Work and Relief Agency, to uh, relief for the Palestinian refugees. So that we began receiving rations from that organization. And there are people still till today in refugee camps that receive rations every month to wow. help them live. Uh, for, for, and this has been going on for 75 years, as we mentioned. So I grew up in the West Bank. I went to public schools there. Uh, you know, life was difficult for us because, you know, we were trying to build things from scratch after we lost all our properties, all the things that we've had. My parents had a very difficult time coping with, with this and a lot of emotional stress and anguish. And eventually I came to the U.S. Uh, where I went to... Uh, uh, one year to complete my high school, I had a scholarship from a Quaker school in, in uh, Newtown, Pennsylvania, called the George School, and, uh, and mm. then I attended Oberlin College hey. in, in Ohio. Uh, as you know, it's a very liberal school, and um, I also received a degree, an MBA degree from the University of Connecticut, and uh, began working after graduating from college, and I've been working since. Uh, uh, over 45 years uh, of working in business. Wow! No, that that uh, that uh, that is quite a story, and to 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 you know be there and, and and be so close and pick up and recreate life here. Um, you know, with all that's going on and continues to go on. You know what? What does the future look like for you? What 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 do you hope to see? Well, uh, just like all the Palestinians, uh, you know, we all hope to see Palestine free. We we hope to see uh, our Palestinian people free, and we hope to see justice uh, uh, served, and uh, you know that they have the right to return to their to their towns and villages. Uh, that their uh, ancestors were driven from, mm. and uh, and uh, more importantly, uh, we we hope to see a free country. Uh, whether that country is going to be for Palestinians and Jewish people together, uh, that's yet to be seen. But it needs to be free, and uh, everybody needs to have equal rights, mm. and not an apartheid system. Uh, Israel cannot. Uh, be an 
a country occupying Palestine and making it exclusively only for Jewish people and kicking everybody else out. That's, that, that should, not hap- should not have happened and that will not stand. And the Palestinians are determined to, to stick to their rights and insist on the right to return and the right to be compensated for all the damage that was done to them for no fault of their reasons. Uh, the Europeans and the Germans are the ones who persecuted the Jewish people. They're the ones who committed the atrocities, committed the Holocaust. We did nothing for the, to, to the Jewish people. We were in Palestine. We were living peacefully with our Jewish and Christian um, uh, minorities. Palestine was 70% Muslims, 20% Christians, and 10% Jewish at the beginning of the 20th century, and everybody was living in harmony at the time. This whole thing started when Zionism moved in and came up with this idea of creating an exclusive country for the Jewish people and throwing everybody else out. Well, I, I, I hope we see that future. I, uh, I, 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 I know that... Uh, uh, People would love to connect with you. So how do people find you? How do people connect with you? I know you mentioned your screening, so yeah. we can share that again. They can go to uh, our website, mm-hmm. palestinemuseum.us. Okay. Uh, and uh, they could click on contact and send an email. Uh, also, they could send an email to info at palestinemuseum.us. Mm-hmm. Very simple. And your 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 podcasts again. What days and times are those? Uh, they they are on Zoom uh, Zoom webinars, and they're on Saturday and Sunday at twelve noon, uh, U.S. Eastern um, Daylight Savings Time. And so, my favorite question to always ask people, you know, what's a favorite song? Um. Of course, uh, my favorite song is, is an Arabic song. It's in Arabic. It's, um, uh, we actually played this song at the opening of the current exhibit um, that's in Venice that opened on May 20th of this year. Uh, originally, it was composed and sung by an Egyptian uh, singer called uh, um, Muhammad Abdul Wahab, um, but uh, the one... Uh, we can you can play uh, a cut from is as uh, the one that we actually had uh, in Venice uh, at the opening on May twentieth by uh, uh, a Palestinian uh, musician who is uh, uh, from um, from Chicago. Hey, uh, and uh, his name is Rani Maali. Uh, M-A-L-L-E-Y and uh, he's quite a musician and we've uh, brought him from Chicago to Venice to perform uh, a concert. Uh, he plays oud. Oud is a Middle Eastern instrument. It looks like the lute. The lute was derived from the, from the oud. Um, and uh, it's a song called Palestine, which means Palestine in Arabic. And it's a very nationalistic song. Uh, and uh, all I could say, free Palestine. <laughs>
Let's hear the song. Wow. <laughs> Beautiful song. It's, it's very emotional for Palestinians to hear this song. Well, uh, Falsa, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining us uh, uh, on Just In Time Conversations. Um, it was a pleasure to have you, a pleasure for the museum, and the museum's address again for people to visit. Uh, the museum, uh, palestinemuseum.us, uh, info at palestinemuseum.us. Please send us an email uh, and uh, make an appointment to, to visit the museum. The museum is located at 1764 Litchfield Turnpike in Woodbridge, Connecticut. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Falsa. And thank you for uh, hosting me and uh, uh, giving Palestinians uh, a voice uh, to, uh, to tell their story and, and their narrative. Thank you. No, no problem. Until next time, let us continue to plant the seeds of change so we can grow together. Thank you. Yeah. Yo, yo, time to play leaving? All right. See you at the airport. I'm leaving on the next plane. I don't know when I'll be back again. Kiss me and smile for me. Traveling man, moving through places, space and time. Got a lot of things I got to do. God willing, I'm coming back to you, baby boo. I'm leaving. Go ahead and leave the call. Heard around the world from the wise of them seas. These cats are paying more than half a pound. I'm going back and snatch it down. I got the skate, but we can probably run the back of town. Scenarios like this is tear jerkers for the modern MC. I eat a blue collar worker, cause this thing called rhyming, no different from coal mining. We both on the assignments and unearthed the Start shining, you be struggling and striving, and they think you prime time and maintain it. Keep silent, make no an observation. It's confrontation. This is the daily operation. My concentration, stay focused on my recitation. About to reach my destination with no pause or hesitation, baby. Make the preparation.
Shit, cause this ain't no recreation, this is pro ball. And we letting you know, y'all, and show y'all. Doing this for dough, y'all. Get the phone call, and I'm ready to blow y'all. About to go, y'all. Been a pleasure to know y'all. No, y'all. And I'm letting you know. I'm leaving on a jet plane. I don't know if I'll be back again. Kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you wait for me. Over the world we go Japan we go Over the world we go Over the world we go Over the world we go Japan we go Over the world we go Over the world we go Japan 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 we go Over the world we